Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 64. Well, hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I'm your host, Avanti, and I am so thrilled that you're here with me again, spending part of your day with me listening to this podcast. You know, it's hard to believe that it's already October and we're rolling right into the end of the year. October is always a fun month with lots of activity and lots of movement with an increase of the air element. You know, we're in transition from summer to fall, settling into new rhythms and routines and getting ready for a really busy season of connection with friends and family. For me personally, October is the kickoff for lots of family celebrations and cultural holidays. My daughter's birthday is this month. The Indian New Year, Diwali falls somewhere at the end of October or the beginning of November, depending on the lunar calendar. And then we continue to Thanksgiving and the holidays of many other spiritual traditions and end with a transition from one calendar year to the next year on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Yep, it's a time of year that is really busy and it requires lots of energy, which reminds me to remind you about my new energy fix quiz, which will give you your energy type along with personalized recommendations from me for your energy fix to boost your energy and support your health. It takes just three to four minutes and you can find it at avantikumarsingh.com. In addition, for all of you who are part of my community through the newsletter or the Healing Catalyst Collective, or you follow me on Instagram, look for a special invitation in early December to join me for a special masterclass where I'll be teaching you live about jumpstarting your health goals for next year in 2023. So make sure you're part of my community. There's links in the show notes to join my newsletter or the Healing Catalyst Collective and to follow me on Instagram. Okay, so all of you who have been listening to this podcast know that a new month means a new intention here on the podcast. And so this month during October, we'll be exploring the idea and intention of connection with self as medicine. You know, I thought this was really important because we're coming up on such a busy time of the year in which we'll be spending so much time connecting with others. And I started thinking about a conversation that I had back in July with my friend Pyle Berry, who is an organizational psychologist about an empathy mindset. It's linked in the show notes for you in case you haven't heard it, in which Pyle emphasized that empathy for others starts with empathy for self. And so as I was thinking about this idea of connection with others, I started thinking about the idea that connection with self is the first step. So this month, we'll be exploring connection with self through spirituality and through nature and through stillness. My guests are experts in their fields who have extensive knowledge in these areas, as well as deep personal study and experiences, which you'll hear about in our conversations. 
And so to kick it off, I'm joined by Ananta Ripa Ajmera, an Ayurveda practitioner, yoga instructor, and co-founder and CEO of The Ancient Way, an educational organization that serves as a bridge between ancient wisdom and modern living. She's also the author of two books, The Ayurveda Way, and her newly published book just this month, The Way of the Goddess, Daily Rituals to Awaken Your Inner Warrior and Discover Your True Self. Ananta is deeply studied in Ayurveda yoga, and Vedanta in a traditional Vedic Indian lineage for nine years. Her work has been featured on ABC News, Forbes, Vogue, Newsweek, Well and Good, Yoga Journal, Spirituality and Health Magazine, New York Magazine, and Mind Body Green. In addition, Anantha has taught Ayurveda at Stanford, UNICEF, the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, Columbia Business School, and UC Berkeley. In our conversation, we dive into her personal story of transformation and the connection to self that she experienced through her spiritual study. We also discuss the different types of intellect and the hero or heroine's journey as a spiritual journey that connects you to something greater than the self. We also discuss the idea of the divine that is within and the difference between the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Anantha also shares how to nurture connection to self through connection to the divine within, specifically the goddess and the divine feminine within, which is a subject of her new book, The Way of the Goddess. She calls this a daily Navratri practice. And given that we are in the midst of Navratri right now, the nine day celebration of the goddess Durga, it feels especially auspicious that she's my guest today on this episode. Get out a pen and a notebook because Anantha shares so much that I know you will find incredibly inspiring and incredibly helpful as you explore connection with self as medicine. Ananta, it is so, so lovely to meet you in person. I have actually, you know, read your first book many years ago and I just got your second book. You sent it to me so kindly and I dove into it last week and have so much that I want to talk to you about and ask you about. I just want to start by saying your book really touched me. So thank you for this. It's a beautiful book and it is so, it's really got a lot of depth to it. And also at the same time is an introduction to so many people who may not understand or not even understand or who may not be from a South Asian tradition or household. But for me personally, being South Asian, it really touched me in many ways. So thank you for this. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast also. I'm looking forward to talking to you. It's it's always so amazing to talk to people who've actually read the book in such depth to have so many questions. And I am just like, wow, this project that was my personal transformation project is now something that is available for people and people can talk to me about it. It's not just my internal dialogue with a select few people who are supporting the process, but it's like an open dialogue now with me and whoever wants to talk to me. <laughs> no, and it's a really amazing thing, right? I think that's part of the the joy and sort of the mission behind writing books. You know, you and I are both authors. And I think this is probably what drives us a little bit is that it's our own personal experience with whatever subject we are writing about that we want to put out in the world so that there can be this conversation with others. So it's not just in ourselves, in our minds, but it becomes a conversation with other human beings. So yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. And so, you know, let's dive in with that whole idea of your personal transformation. You know, 
you and I have a, a shared experience in that we both grew up in South Asian families here in the United States. And then after pursuing our careers, or maybe with pursuing our careers, we found ourselves back in the healing traditions of our ancestors, in Ayurveda and in yoga. What I'm curious about after doing some research on you and reading about some of the work that you've done and then reading your new book, I'm curious about your journey after you found Ayurveda and yoga. And you know, what led you to writing this book, but really to healing the childhood trauma that you experienced through this deeper study of the Vedas? Let's kind of start there, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So what inspired me to write this book was that personal quest, actually, that I went on starting in college to turn this idea of social entrepreneurship, which I was studying in business school inside out. I asked myself, how can I create this pattern breaking change that social entrepreneurship is defined as in a sustainable way in my own life and then be able to scale the changes I make in my life into the work I feel called to do in the world? Asking that question as a 20-year-old college student really set me onto a mission to find answers to my soul's yearning to know the truth and to know who it is I really am. And that was really what set me onto the journey to return to my roots, to go visit India. All through my teenage years, I didn't go to India. We had gone a lot growing up from zero to 12 or 13, I had gone a lot to India. Almost every year we went and we had our whole extended family there. And then somehow we just didn't go when I was a teenager. And I felt really confused by a lot of the things that were in our culture that were not really explained. And when I got to New York, I was really stressed living in a big city and turned to yoga for stress relief. And it was so interesting to go into a yoga studio in New York City and hear the same mantras I grew up listening to and see the same goddesses I grew up seeing in the Hindu temples and totally not understanding. And then when I got to India, I realized, wow, India has a lot to offer in terms of both social entrepreneurship organizations and humanitarian work, but also such depth of spirituality that I realized I just needed someone to explain to me. And when I had gone to India, I met a young girl named Lakshmi at the Gandhi Ashram who had gone through sexual abuse. And yet she was named after the most widely worshipped Hindu goddess of wealth. And that was really the catalyst for this book. I could not reconcile in my mind, how is it that we in India, worship Lakshmi, the goddess, but we don't recognize that within young girls and women. And we ourselves don't always recognize that a goddess lives within us and not just within us, but within all living beings. And I wanted to know what is that goddess and how can we actually internalize the power that the goddess has to be existing in all of the businesses in India, right? And to be this incredibly well-known phenomenon. It's like, oh, well, if we're seeing something so powerful outside, can we not connect with that power 
within us. And I saw myself in that little girl. And I saw, I believe, also a possibility of a prospect of some healing that could happen by really following what this question of internalizing change and also understanding the goddess, not necessarily as someone to pray for, for money, but as something deep within for healing. And I feel like that was really the catalyst. And then it was just kind of one thing led to another. And I ended up going to Kerala for a yoga teacher training program where I experienced the Ayurveda lifestyle. And I just loved it. And I was like, wow, this is leading me to the answer to my questions about creating pattern-breaking changes because we're changing our whole schedule pattern, our lifestyle pattern, food pattern, thought pattern. It was going so deep and I just loved the way that I felt. So I'm like, how now do I feel this way all the time, even when I'm not in South India? So it was just a series of questions actually that led me to write this book, which ultimately is also guiding us all to ask questions as a way to develop the intellect. In the Vedanta spirituality of yoga and Ayurveda, we have this concept of the intellect. And I'm so grateful to have studied with Swami Parthasarthi, who is a 95-year-old Vedanta guru who has created the first organization in the world to really support people to develop the intellect, because it's the intellect which helps us to be able to perceive our true self. And we need to be able to have a discerning intellect in order to make good decisions in all aspects of our life and ultimately to achieve the goal of our human life, which is to realize our true nature. And to develop that, we have to question everything. So I can see how, looking back, my intellect was always present questioning. And then it led me to a guru to reflect back that, yes, questioning is the way. You must keep on questioning. And, and that's been amazing. Right. Okay. So that's a really interesting thing to say because I identify with that so much, right? You know, you and I grew up in South Asian households where education is so valued, especially for women, right? And um, I know my parents came to this country to be able to have a better life, give me and my younger sister more education. Part of our education was developing our intellect. Yet I find for myself is that I was in my medical training, right? developing my intellect, but completely disconnected from myself, right? So it's almost a contradiction of what you're saying is that, you know, that it's through developing the intellect that we create this connection to ourself. Yet for me, my experience was so different. It wasn't until I found Ayurveda again that I changed that. So I'm really curious for you. I mean, you've studied Ayurveda and yoga, and then you had an inkling of this idea of connecting to the goddess within, but what in your studies, you know, with in Vedanta, in this Vedic philosophy, how did that take you deeper into really connecting to yourself, questioning, developing your intellect, but in a very different way? I know it's a convoluted question. I think I'm making sense in how I'm asking this to you, but let me see if I understood it correctly so that I can give the answer that you're looking for. Um, it sounds like your experience of the intellect was very much outside of you. Yes. yes. Where it was about externalizing 
how you process information that comes from outside. Right. Right. And a lot of like taking in what was from the outside, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. And so it's interesting because in the Vedanta teachings, Swami Parthasarthi always distinguishes that there's a difference between intelligence, which is mm. what we gain from external educational institutions, from our parents, from society, from other people, and then intellect, which is actually the inner wisdom that comes from within. So we are actually really trained to be intelligent in this society. We are trained to know everything external that we have been told by the higher authorities of knowledge and universities and you know medical profession in your case. And what we're learning in the spiritual tradition is to actually look at all of this, even that we're supposed to accept as fact and actually question deeper if we're doing it with the gross intellect because there's two kinds of intellect so one is the gross intellect where you know if you're receiving a lot of information from outside if you have a good gross intellect then you will still discern and ask questions and analyze things and that will give you the ability to be like a creative genius right and to question the system and to create innovation in the system. So there may be a lot of people who go through medical school, but only a few people will actually have breakthrough discoveries, right? So those are the people who have been daring to ask questions and daring to think outside of the box, but they're doing it in the realm of the gross intellect, which is of the world, right? And we need that. Even in Ayurveda, to follow the Ayurveda lifestyle, we need to exercise the same gross intellect to think, is this burger going to be better for my body's health? Or is eating, say, a bowl of kitchari going to be better for my body at this moment, right? It's constantly looking at pairs of opposites and two different choices and or more than two choices and deciding what is the best one amongst those choices. Then on the spiritual path, what we are looking to really develop is something called the subtle intellect. And the subtle intellect is something that maybe lesser people are even aware they have within them. Only the human being really is equipped with this special faculty of the subtle intellect. And this is the part of us that is able to question what is coming and going versus what is eternal. What is transient versus what is transcendental? What is just of this physical body, mind, and intellect? And what is the soul that is a constant, that is a continual presence that is not only in myself, but in you and in all living beings? And so the intellect that, say, Swamiji, for example, is helping seekers to develop is that subtle intellect. And that's the intellect that will actually give us the internal inquiry and self-inquiry to ask ourselves questions about ourselves rather than wondering too much about what's going on with other people, which is how we often will question things, you know, like, why did they say that? Why did they do that? Why don't they like me? Why did they betray me? Right? We have all these questions about other people's behaviors and wondering what motivates it and trying to get to the bottom of it, but we don't always turn the lens inward to say, what is it about 
that person's behavior that is giving me the, some information about issues within myself that need to be healed, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we turn that inquiry inward and when we're really looking for what is lasting, what is truth versus what is an illusion and what is coming and going, that's when we're in the realm of the subtle intellect. And that's when we will be getting closer and closer to our goal of realizing the truth of ourself, our self with a capital S. Yes. Okay. That is a beautiful description. So I love that you really clarify the difference between intelligence and intellect, which I think is the first point that you made so beautifully. And yes, I definitely have been raised to completely develop my intelligence and the development of my intellect was not something that was necessarily brought front and center, you know, living here in this country. It was something that I saw in my grandfather, who was very much an influence in my life for me to then come to Ayurveda and pursue this as my profession. And so I think there's that that beautiful distinction you made for us. So thank you for that. And then I just want to try and clarify the difference between the gross intellect and the subtle intellect, because I think this is such an important concept for us to understand as, you know, this episode is really about connection to self, right? That's what we're exploring this month on the podcast. And I really wanted to talk to you about how spirituality and connection with spirituality, perhaps the intellect, how that allows for connection to the self, capital S, right? So I think that what you were trying to say about the distinction between the gross intellect and the subtle intellect is that the gross intellect is questioning that which is outside of you versus subtle intellect is questioning what is inside of you. Is that pretty close to what you were saying? Yeah, that's definitely one part of it is Mm -hmm. the nature of the questioning, but the more precise definition really would, or distinction rather, would be that the gross intellect is discernment amongst choices at a gross level, Mm -hmm. right, of the world. So it's, it's more of the worldly intellect, which is engaging with the world in some way or the other in an intelligent way, right? In a way that's uh, making good choices, ideally, or being able to, first of all, see what is a good choice, what is not a good choice. Sometimes we think we have no choice, Right. And so we go blindly do things and we blindly react. And so the intellect is also that which is able to control the mind and actually respond to something versus react to something. So if someone even has a good gross intellect, it's a great thing to be able to make good choices to lead a healthy life. And we definitely need to have that for our physical health even, and for our security and survival and success in the material world. But the subtle intellect, what's different about it is that it's constantly discerning what is eternal versus what is ephemeral. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I just want to make sure that those sort of distinctions are clear because it can get very convoluted otherwise when we start talking about these different words and what the meanings are. I've found that in much of my study of Ayurveda and yoga, Vedanta, that these subtle differences between how we think about these words is so actually very, very important to our overall understanding. 
of what we're being taught, right? So I think it's really important to define that. Here's something else that I found really interesting is that, you know, going along this idea of developing the gross intellect, the subtle intellect, is that, you know, you described what you wrote in this new book, you know, The Way of the Goddess, as a guide to becoming the hero of your spiritual journey. And I really started thinking about, you know, one of the fundamental principles or ideas in Ayurveda, which is that each of us has this universal intelligence, which resides in us, right? Because we are all made of the same five elements of nature. And so we are connected to everything in the universe. And that this universal intelligence is, you know, a limitless source of information that we can access anytime, anywhere, right? It's also what we call in Western culture, perhaps the gut instinct or the higher self or the soul, or, you know, what I, in my work, call the inner healer. From your perspective, how is a hero's journey a spiritual journey? I love this question. It's been coming up actually a lot in my interviews. Yeah, the hero's how is the hero's journey a spiritual journey? Mm-hmm. How can it not be? Is what I feel now. <laughs> yeah, because I agree. I agree. Right? Because I feel that even when we think that we have something external to overcome, when it feels like there is someone outside of us really challenging us or an obstacle that is really big that comes from the world, right? Or from societal pressure or family pressures. We think it's outside, but actually in order to overcome it, we all have to go deep within to realize and find the strength to actually overcome that challenge. And when we do that, we realize that the obstacle was actually within us. And therefore, we can start to see these obstacles as our opportunities to develop our inner hero. And it's not about your muscles outside as much as it is about your internal strength and ability to practice discernment and to practice being objective in life and being able to practice being equally accepting of joy and sorrow, honor and dishonor, pain and pleasure, and all the different pairs of opposites that the world is, by its very nature, going to present us with. We Mm -hmm. can't do that just by being physically strong or a superhero with a cape in the kind of funny media way of understanding a hero. We have to do that by looking deep within ourselves and realizing that we have the strength within us to develop even if we need to develop physical strength. We have to go first within our self to believe that that's possible. And we have to Mm -hmm. overcome our own doubts and our own fears and our own you know, insecurities to even do anything meaningful in life. And, you know, a spiritual journey is basically leading us to the ultimate goal and purpose of life. And how can we not become a hero by going on it, right? Even by just treading onto the path, it's like you start that journey right from step one, cultivating the power of stability and daring to go on it. It's a lot 
more comfortable perhaps not to go on a hero's journey. But when you do, and when you're on the spiritual journey, it's just the greatest journey of this whole existence to look at our own life and our own emotions and our own experiences from a different lens, from a lens Mm -hmm. of the inner warrior, from the Mm -hmm. lens of that inner hero or that inner healer, as you like to call it, that knows that this this obstacle is my opportunity to actually realize I already am what I'm looking for. Right. And so I think that it's so important, a point that you just made is that it is, it's a different perspective, right? On what the purpose perhaps of life is, of this lifetime is, you know, we believe in our spiritual traditions that we have many lifetimes. We come back each time learning more lessons, right? And that is a very different view than a Western view, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of what is the purpose of life? I know that, you know, in Vedanta, in the Vedic philosophy, there are very specific reasons for life or purposes in life, right? Which is very different than what perhaps the Western mindset is. And maybe that's where the question is coming from is, you know, the hero's journey, yes, has been sort of, if you look deeper into, you know, that work of Joseph Campbell and, and this idea of, you know, the hero goes on a quest and has to overcome X, Y, and Z, and then return with new information, new learnings. It is a very much a deeply personal journey. But I think the piece of the spiritual journey from our perspective, being South Asian and coming from this spiritual tradition is a little more nuanced and that is very much about what is the purpose of life from the get-go? You know, what is that purpose? And it's a very spiritual purpose to life. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe all of the world's religions are actually leading us to the same idea. So whether it's Western religions or Eastern spiritual traditions, we're all actually, they're all talking about overcoming the demon of desire because desire is always personified as the demon whether satan in the christian tradition or shaitan in islam or asura in hinduism mara in buddhism there's this idea that we have to overcome that demon of desire in order to even achieve true yoga right or true union with the highest self and even religion and yoga are both about returning back to our original nature. So I feel that there is that commonality amongst East-West in terms of the religious and spiritual beliefs that Mm -hmm. this is what we are here for. And yet we may not know about that or have understood that because a lot of conflict happens, right? In the name of religion. And so it can be a scary thing. Even I was like, oh my gosh, it's a book that I'm writing about Hinduism. And is it going to be like causing conflict because of the fact that it's associated with a religion, right? And yet the Hindu religion itself is so interesting that it's actually so accepting of all religions, right? It's saying all paths are leading to the same truth. And the truth is one, the name's the sages have given it are many. And so it's, it's actually like quite a all encompassing philosophy in that sense. And I think in, in the religious and spiritual sense, it's very clear what the purpose of life is. Right. Right. So, you know, let's turn to another thing that I 
I found really interesting in your book, you know, in our spiritual tradition in South Asia and specifically India, we believe that the divine is within each of us, right? Which is made of both the feminine and the masculine, right? Both the goddess and the God within, and that every manifestation of the divine has both the masculine and the feminine form. So I'd love to talk about this because that is something that's very different than in Western culture, which is very much about a masculine form of the divine, right? Which is, I think, one of the major themes of your book, obviously, because it's the way of the goddess. But let's talk about that a little bit, this idea of that duality of the masculine and feminine forms of the divine. Yeah, I love it. I think it's so cool, actually, that in our Eastern tradition, we have this really mature understanding that God and supreme consciousness, truth or reality is actually beyond gender, first of all. It's not male or female. It cannot be one or the other. And because it can't be one or the other, they've made it both. So we even have these fascinating images, right? Of the the deities, which are half female and half male, just to illustrate the point that if it it can't be either, then it's going to be both, you know, and you have to have a balance of both the the masculine and the feminine to ultimately go beyond gender because the truth ultimately goes beyond all of this. But I just think it's so balanced and so beautiful that we are presented with both because the idea of even why we have so many, so many gods and goddesses in the Vedic tradition is not because of polytheism. We believe actually only in one God or one supreme reality, Brahman, but the sages were just incredibly kind and super creative to write this whole cosmic script full of characters who go on their own hero's journeys to show us how we can have role models in our human life to emulate so that we can actually see how we can remember that divinity, even as we're going into the world for, say, material abundance, right? And we're told that's that's goddess Lakshmi. And the idea is just a really smart one that why don't we put goddess Lakshmi here with wealth? So that way, when people are pursuing wealth, they will think of Lakshmi and just the thought of Lakshmi itself is a way to bring and not forget spirituality when going for something that's in the world. Because there's nothing wrong with acquisition in life, but we should never feel that our present happiness is dependent upon anything we acquire in the future. Because if we're not happy with what we have right now, we will never be happy with what we are to gain in the next time. Yeah. And I I think it's a really beautiful way of of thinking about it, that there are these, all these characters that have been created for us to understand this duality in a much more accessible way to our human mind, to the human consciousness, right? And it's really interesting because you can also take this divine form of the masculine and feminine also down to the next level, which is that within each form, whether it's masculine or feminine, also has masculine and feminine energies, right? And characteristics and qualities. I mean, you wrote in the introduction of your book, early on in my studies, I discovered that 
the goddesses are not only nurturers, but also warriors. And I so connected with that. I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful way of thinking about it. Can you tell me more about sort of your experience or your discovery of that idea? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I personally feel that each number of the avatars of goddess Durga feels like it alternates between more masculine attributes and more feminine attributes. Goddess one, three, five, seven, and nine are really intense. They are like showing us a more masculine side, I feel, of Durga because they are really having a lot more weapons. They're engaged directly in battles. They are, you know, showing us courage. They're showing us uh, the power of voice, the power of transcendence. We have Kalaratri as goddess number seven, who is literally, you know, drinking the blood of the demon who keeps multiplying by shedding its blood everywhere, right? That's intense. That's like the ferocious side of the goddess, which we could say is maybe the more masculine attributes, right? That we mm-hmm. traditionally associate with sure. a masculine energy. And then we have goddess two, four, six, and eight, which are the more softer aspects of the divine feminine, the more receptive aspects where we're asked to really cultivate our emotions, to channel our emotions in a beautiful way, right? In a creative way in an artistic way and then to feel our heart and to connect with our heart and to love ourselves as a way to love others and then to go within to hear our inner voice right and to be receptive to the signs and symbols and how they are leading and guiding us and even as we have to set boundaries in life to do so with a heart full of compassion right it's to take strong action with compassion, which is of course not even easy to do. So though they may be more feminine, they're still warriors because it's really hard to bring these things together. Um, But then, you know, in the eighth incarnation of Durga, she comes as an eight-year-old child and is reminding us to not take everything in life so seriously at this point that now that we've, you know, drank the blood of the demon and, you know, destroyed the illusions in step seven on transcendence. It's like, okay, now play, now have fun, now actually have the power of rejuvenation, enjoy the Ayurvedic herbs, the bounty of nature. And don't forget that life is meant for relaxation also. And that pleasure is also a valid goal of life. But at this stage of the journey, we're not going to lose ourselves anymore in pleasure. We're going to actually enjoy it without craving for it, right? Because it's only when we're purely enjoying something that we actually enjoy it. If we're full of cravings or if when we get something, we immediately want more of it, then that wanting itself is destroying our experience of the pleasure in the here and now, which is where spirituality wants us to live, right? Right here and right now. And so I just think it's a really fun juxtaposition from day to day, step to step of the spiritual journey of Navratri itself to actually go from one to the other. And it's just so balanced. And I actually personally feel sometimes that I need to actually connect more with the divine masculine to even feel the power of goddess Durga within myself. And when I feel 
that yes, I am also a warrior. I and I, you know, maybe associate that with more masculine attributes. But when I own that aspect of myself, then I feel like yes, I've understood the complete picture of what it means to be compassionate and a healer, but also a warrior and able to take the sword when necessary to cut away that which does not serve us and to cut away the falsehoods and to cut away the attachments and the insecurities that trouble us in life, right? Because sometimes it's necessary to take strong action and we need to do that with the internal state of compassion. So I feel that it's important for our hearts to be really pure before we take out that sword. So both are really important, but the yeah. the purity of the heart part was easier for me because of probably conditioning from society. And then the idea of holding a sword, right? Like metaphorically, it was like a whoa moment. Like, wow, I can do this, you know? And I need to do this. And I must to be able to restore dharma and the greatest good of all. And so sometimes it's just imagining the divine masculine that helps me understand the divine feminine. You know, like even in chapter eight, I wrote about how I had, first of all, had this whole experience of Radha Rani, who is the female consort of Lord Krishna, and how that was like my experience of love and relationships was to be that devoted, you know, goddess energy towards uh, someone who is like Krishna. And then I'm like, actually, I need to be like Krishna now that I've gone through this journey, you know, and, and that's, uh, that was actually how I connected with the power of rejuvenation with this eight year old girl image of goddess Durga. So I just think it's all so inherently uh, balanced and beautiful and fun and and actually makes it kind of a fun adventure, not just a serious, scary, blood-sucking kind of adventure. There is that, right? But there's right. there's also joy and play and laughter. Right. And it goes back to this idea of the hero's journey of, you know, the the hero versus the heroine. It's not about just being a masculine hero who's going out and conquering all the demons and the obstacles and the bad guys, right? It's about doing both, right? Of, of having that more introspective, perhaps some of those feminine qualities of receiving, nurturing, right? And so it's that balance between the two that I think you're speaking of, which is so important. And you, you mentioned Navratri. So let's let's dive into that because much of your book is about this idea of Navratri. Can you explain for the listeners, you know, what is Navratri? How do you define it? Why is it so important? Let's start there. Sure. Navratri is the nine night goddess worship festival of India, where we are evoking the warrior mother goddess Durga in her nine different avatars. And each night of the Navratri journey, goddess Durga takes on a different avatar to conquer a specific kind of demon. And on the 10th day of this journey, after the nine nights of Navratri, goddess Durga fights and conquers the greatest demon whom none of the male deities could conquer and whom they have entrusted her with the weapons of to be able to go and overcome. 
So it's it's a deeply symbolic journey. Growing up, I associated Navratri with pomegranate seeds, puffed rice, and potatoes, and lots of dancing and loud music and colorful costumes. When I got deeper into the spiritual path, I understood that this was all symbolic. And actually, each and every part of that was really meaningful because pomegranates in Ayurveda are a superfood, right? They're an incredible agent for nourishment and for building our immunity, and they're a fall-friendly food. So originally, uh, Navratri was an Ayurvedic festival that was celebrated to help people ritualistically transition from the food and lifestyle needs of one season to those of the next. And there were actually five Navratris celebrated at all of the junctures of the seasons, according to the Ayurvedic calendar of the year. So it's just, it's so incredible because it's so many things that are ultimately not only leading us on a journey of spiritual realization, but also of how to embody great health in our physical bodies and how to see that we can actually overcome the limiting nature of our minds and to conquer our own inner demons by going on this systematic journey through the nine nights with the nine goddesses who are believed in the ancient tradition to live within each of our nine chakras. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is really, really interesting. I want to dive deeper into that. So <laughs> let's start there. We'll go through sort of that idea of the nine goddesses, the nine chakras. Let's start there. If you could dive in a little bit about that, that would be amazing. Okay, sure. So we start the journey with goddess Durga in the form of Shaila Putri who is said to live in our first chakra, also known as the root chakra. Goddess Shailaputri is empowering us with the power of stability, to even have a foundation of stability to go on a spiritual journey. We need to be more solid, like a rock, and stable mentally to be able to sustain all the intensity of the changes right, that unfold on this whole quest. So we begin there, and she is also teaching us the power of practice, because that is a constant throughout this whole journey. It's not about what we do once that matters, but what we do consistently that is going to really lead to growth and transformation. And once we have that stability, then we are introduced to Goddess Durga in the form of Goddess Brahmacharini who is embodying the brahmacharya protocol. Brahmacharya often is misinterpreted as celibacy forever and ever. It's actually a lot more purposeful and practical than that. Brahmacharya is a path of self-control over the mind and especially the five senses so that we are the master of our mind and senses versus our mind and senses being our master. Like we eat the cookie rather than the cookie eating us kind of thing. And and this is a incredible practice to really build up your physical immunity, your health, your willpower, your strength, and to channel the sexual energy also into creativity and into radiant health and immunity and 
make our mind into a creative field of joy and inspiration. And once we have that joy along with the grounding of stability, then we ignite the fire of transformation in the third chakra, which is the solar plexus with the element of fire and a really intense version of goddess Durga called Chandraganta, who lives in our digestion as the fire that will devour all fires, that will devour all grief, all resistances, all doubts, all fears that we have and convert it into incredible ability to stand up for ourselves, to be able to stand up for dharma, for truth, and to digest not just our food, but our emotions and our life experiences. And when we have completed that transformation, then we move up into the fourth chakra, the heart chakra, where goddess Durga in the form of goddess Kushmanda is said to live. Kushmanda is the goddess who has created the entire universe through her heartfelt laughter. She is believed to be smiling in the lotus of your heart. And she is there to remind us after we've gone through this intense process of purification of our ego through the stability, the creativity, and the transformation that the first three chakras give us to remember to have fun, to remember to laugh, to remember to not now take life so seriously. We need to be serious in the first three steps in order to straighten ourselves out, right? And get ourselves on a higher path and a good track with our health. And then we have to remember, oh, okay, now in the higher chakras, we don't have to be so serious. We can also be lighthearted and have fun. And we're going to be most creative when we're laughing and enjoying life and having fun and healing our heart with things like roses and pomegranate seeds. And once we've done that and we're, our heart is feeling happy, then we move into the Vishuddhi chakra, which is the throat chakra, where Durga in the form of goddess Skandamatha is said to reside. And goddess Skandamatha is the mother or matha of Skanda, who is the warrior god. And we are here able to really develop the power of courage of expression and being able to cultivate our voice through the practice of silence and through the practice of contemplation, reflection, introspection, observing our emotions becoming more objective in how we interact with our own emotions, and then developing more conviction in what it is we truly believe. And from that place of developing the inner conviction in the space of silence and reflection, then we come to embody the courage of expression. And we are able to really develop this by nurturing our inner child, which is the skanda, who lives within us. And when we do that, we emerge powerful and strong like the baby warrior Skanda. And when that warrior has been born, then we move into the sixth incarnation of goddess Durga, who is said to live in the third eye chakra as goddess Kathyayani. And goddess Kathyayani is said to be the grantor of blessings. And she actually supports us in removing any lingering fears 
And she is our power of intuition to be able to really own our reality and to protect that in the face of opposition and in the face of those who may try to gaslight us for our reality. So in this step, we really learn about defining and maintaining healthy boundaries and how to practice ancient conflict resolution strategies and to really, you know, use the love, especially that we've cultivated in step four to then inform how we set those limits and really honor them as a practice of love for oneself and also an honoring of the other as a manifestation of our own self. So there's no like putting up a wall or thorny boundaries. Right. It's it's an idea of fragrant boundaries, which is really, really beautiful. Mm, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Love that. Okay. And and then when we've done that and we've established the boundaries, then we get ready for a big battle with the bloodthirsty demons. Ruck the beach is the demon who comes and is created to help uh, the demonic forces to seduce goddess Katyayani actually in the third eye chakra. And so then goddess Durga creates another avatar called Kalaratri, who comes on a donkey and unlike all the previous goddesses is having wild disheveled hair and she is loaded with weapons and they've got blood on them and she is fighting this really fierce battle with the cloning bloody demon who keeps on emerging with blood in order to reproduce himself and keep multiplying and the only way to be able to destroy this demon is the goddess has to literally drink that blood and it's so symbolic of how we have to look at each and every illusion in our lives that we have unconsciously subscribed to and each and every little desire that we have as an illusion that something we need is outside of ourselves instead of already being within us that we also will conquer that Rock the beach, which keeps on multiplying, and we are able to, in this step, really transcend the duality of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, the losses and gains of life, which are just an inevitable part of it. So, this is where we really transcend also our traumas, where we felt our emotions in the previous steps, and we've acknowledged our heart, and we've been with our feelings and owned our reality, which is all really difficult to do. But then we really, you know, get to go even beyond it and stop identifying with it and only identify with what is eternal, right? So this is where the subtle... And where are we in the chakras? We're at the seventh now in the crown yeah. chakra. So okay. this is where some pretty exciting stuff is happening. And this is traditionally where a lot of systems say it ends, right? With the seventh chakra, crown chakra being about enlightenment. There is definitely a lot of enlightenment that goes on in this step. But what's really, really fun is that they don't end it here with this bloody battle, right? They're like, do this, get enlightened, have a new perspective, transcend your traumas. And after you do that, remember the power of rejuvenation. And then Durga comes as an eight-year-old child with a drum and a tambourine, and she's wearing all white. And she is representing purity and beauty that emerges from purity. We have that expression in the Vedas, Satyam Shivam 
Sundaram, that truth is pure beauty, right? And and consciousness is beauty. And we have then this new beginning that emerges after we have gone through that transcendental battle of enlightenment, then we get this fresh start. And it's truly a fresh start because our perspective has changed. And we get to get younger on this part, not by anything external, but primarily because spiritual practice really is the ultimate rejuvenation, right? And Ayurveda, the mind and emotions is such a big causative factor for so many problems. And by going through the cholera three step, we really conquer those emotions that are coming from unfulfilled desires that are coming from a forgetfulness of who we really are as a spiritual being. And once we've got that, it's like, oh, now you can truly benefit from even the rejuvenating herbs of Ayurveda and the rejuvenating you know, treatments and you can dance and you can play and you can actually receive new inputs that maybe were not available when we were blocked by the restrictions of our limitations of our identification with all the difficulties we've gone through. Right. So that's right. like a really fun part. And then it doesn't even end there. It actually, we've gone now above the head slightly, like above the crown chakra. And then we go even slightly above that into an astral chakra in the ninth step with Durga as goddess Siddhidatri. Siddhidatri is the grantor of Siddhis or supernatural healing powers. And she is empowering us to, at this advanced stage, start to give back and to realize that any gifts that we have been given are not just for us. They are not from us. They come from a divine entity. And we are able to give back now to as many beings as possible by having a sense or spirit of gratitude and really giving back out of that feeling of gratitude and fullness and having gone through this whole journey to heal ourselves in order to now be able to, as I had said in my life, scale the changes we wish to or feel called to impart into the world. And so really the whole journey is leading us to that moment of giving back from a place of feeling whole and happy within rather than giving back, looking for happiness or wholeness from the act of giving. It's very different to come from fullness versus to seek fullness from what we're doing. And that's what Siddhidatri gives us. Thank you for that beautiful description. And what you've just defined and sort of outlined is the hero's journey. So I, it's coming full circle to this idea because it is so much what the steps of the hero's journey is described in Joseph Campbell's work. And of course, you know, the hidden meaning is right there in the chakras, right? It actually goes through the energy centers. And so I'm always so amazed at the wisdom and the beauty that is in our spiritual traditions and Vedanta and in what we come from. And I always say this, and I'm so grateful that I grew up in a South Asian family, that this is my ancestry because of this beauty. When you're when you're willing to open your eyes and look at it from that perspective, it can be transformative. And there are these hidden meanings, you know, the chakras, as you said, you know, in the West have 
always been defined as, you know, chakra, you know, one through seven. And we know, we both know through our studies that that is not true, that there are many, many more chakras than just one through seven. And I love that you've actually added that into what you've written, because I think, again, it's, it's an ability to open people's minds to there is so much more than what perhaps Western culture has defined as the chakra system or as yoga and getting beyond sort of these def- definitions that have been created by people who didn't come from our culture. You know, I think that's an important thing to th- talk about too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting, right? Because there are definitely a lot of Western background people who have really gone deep into the studies of Ayurveda, yoga, and Vedanta and have a much more profound appreciation actually for them than even some people who are born and brought up with them. Because sometimes when we're brought up with something, we take it for granted. And when people don't have that growing up and seek it out, they often will seek it out with such an intensity that allows them to go into the depth of it, which is actually a really beautiful thing. And in a way, it's it's amazing and great that the Western fascination with all of the ancient Indian wisdom has helped to revitalize it and resurface it. And now I feel it's more important than ever to also keep looking back to the roots of these traditions to be able to pull out the full beauty and benefit of it. Because if we don't know that there's anything beyond chakra seven, then we don't really have the access to the power of rejuvenation and the power of intention and leadership with integrity that kind of completes the journey of the Navratri spiritual, you know, journey. And I think even the goddess idea has gotten a little misconstrued or misused in a lot of contexts. I think a lot of times people will say like, oh, you're such a goddess as a compliment for a woman's like physical beauty or embodied sensuality or something like that. And that's definitely great, right? Like we celebrate beauty and we have uh, appreciation for pleasure as a goal and quest of life that is not something we seek out, but rather can purely enjoy, right? And that's a part of the purusharthas or the, the kind of four aspects of life. And yet there's so much more to what the goddess is than just remaining at the physical level. We have to really go deep into all of these things to gain the full range of benefit and healing that they have to offer us. So I feel we all owe it to ourselves to really strive to go to the origins of these practices and to find out the real deep hidden symbolic truths because it's really actually quite challenging to convey those deeply symbolic truths and I can understand why nobody could really explain it to my satisfaction growing up and having gone on the struggle myself to figure it out and to learn about it and to take the time that it takes to go into it even though I also have 
great Ayurvedic ancestors, it really took a lot to understand this, right? A lot of time, a lot of investigation. But I'm so glad that I did because now when I look around and see how certain concepts are being presented, I just feel kind of sad that people don't realize that being a goddess is not just about being beautiful. It's about being truly divine and really connected to who you are and without any desire for anything outside you. I mean, that's like a huge power that we don't know about, right? Which we have to dig deep in order to discover. So I think it's really important to to really dig deep and go to authentic sources to find out the truth and go to people who have gone to authentic sources also. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that that's so important. And it, and it can't be that these truths are not told, right? It cannot be reducing yoga to the postures, to the asana. It cannot be reducing Ayurveda to having warm water with lemon in the morning, right? These are not, <laughs> you know, these are practices um, and parts of these very, very deep healing modalities. And there's so much depth to the why behind that, that goes to these deeply spiritual ideas and thoughts and philosophies, which, which must be talked about, right? And I take it very seriously as a South Asian woman to help make sure that that is talked about, that it is not only reduced to these simple soundbite types of you know, media glorified types of things, right, <laughs> that we do in Western culture. So I think it's it's really important. And what you said about the goddesses, I think that that's so important, right? Because it is so much about, oh, you're such a goddess. Oh, you look like a goddess, right? It's all about that external, which of course is important. It's, it's, it's part of who we are as human beings, but there is so much more to it, which I think is what you talk about so beautifully in your book, which I appreciate so much. And so, you know, we've been talking for a while and I really want to try and end on something very practical. You know, you took us through, you know, the chakras and the goddesses and the symbolism and the depth behind them. But, you know, how does somebody get started with a, with what you call a daily Navratri practice, right? To start this this hero's journey, this spiritual journey. And you have so many practices that go along with each of these goddesses, you know, these nine steps. But where could someone who's just listening to us talking today get started? I feel that the best way to start on this journey would be to actually read through the book and go through understanding how it all works and to actually see what calls to you after you read each chapter and maybe just try out one thing that you learned about from each chapter at the beginning and then you can see after you do that where you would like to go deeper and you can go back just to that part and maybe do more of the practices in that step if you're say looking to reclaim the power of your voice. You could go through the whole step-by-step journey because it is important to see how all the steps are interconnected with each other because you don't want to just start necessarily with five, although that may be your doorway in because you realize, oh, I would like to reclaim my voice, for example. Then it's like you have to also start with one because maybe there's something destabilizing you from 
your expression, right? And maybe there's some emotion that needs to be channeled in order for that voice to come through, right? So it's it's very beneficial to get all of the steps, but you can really focus in on what you're looking to do, what your intention is by, you know, having the supporting practices and then maybe diving more into say step five, chapter five, and trying to do more of those practices and kind of having a focus for a certain period of time. But honestly, it's it's really flexible. I just think it's important to see the whole picture first and then you can work with it maybe by focusing on one step for one week or one month or even one year. And then the next step you can focus on for one week, one month or one year, right? And then eventually as you get more and more accustomed to what these steps are and how they feel to you, then after I have gone through kind of this journey for seven years, I started making it a daily practice of simply remembering a different form of Goddess Durga in order each day. And then just by doing that, it actually just sets the tone for the day. And I always, without fail, notice that whatever happens in the day is a reflection of the themes of the goddess who I am remembering that day. And just by evoking that as a memory, first thing in the morning, it sets the tone for what I end up doing. And I just find it really natural to then focus in on that power and do something that is in the spirit of that practice and then you know move to the next. And then what's really important though is to celebrate the victories. I feel that cannot be overstated. You know, like someone had asked me, he's a shaman and a healer. And he said, it's so interesting that your book talks about celebration of the eternal victory of light over darkness. A lot of times it gets real serious on the spiritual path and with healing and we get really focused and it's, it's an intense thing. And so this idea of joy and celebration is maybe a little unusual, but I think it's really important because when we're going on the hero's journey and defeating these demons and then encountering more demons as we go, Mm -hmm. we have to celebrate the victories in order to fortify what we've already experienced to give us the fuel of the fire of motivation to be ready for the next and to feel that we can continue to grow and continue to do this and to have some space for integration. So that's why I always take the 10th day to really process and reflect and feel grateful for all the inevitable transformations that the previous nine days of being on this cycle have led to. Right. I love all of what you said and that, you know, understanding the big picture, making sure that you celebrate your victories, but understanding the big picture and understanding where is it that you maybe feel drawn to what power maybe you need to cultivate or or reflect upon or dig deeper into. And I also think that it's it's hard though. You know, as you said, you know, this is about intellect. This is about self-reflection. And many times for many people who are probably listening to this podcast and myself included, it's difficult to know even if I read the book, where to start. And so maybe what I was asking for is perhaps you know, a simple place to start that, that you find is a good place to then jump off of, you know, 
for a daily Navratri practice. If you've been listening to this episode and you're so curious about this process and there's something speaking to you that, oh, you know, I can see that there's something here for me. I, I could do this, but I don't know where I should start. What would you suggest as a place to start? I would suggest as a simple place to start with this journey, really daring to look within and ask yourself, what is it that I truly want? And seeing if you can define an intention for your own personal hero's journey. Because I feel that it all begins with that power of intention. It's interesting because that's the ninth step, but it directly leads into the first step, right? Because once you have an intention, then you can put that into practice. And then you know when you're receiving external information how to internally navigate it and what's relevant to you right now based on what you feel called towards. And I just feel we all have that knowing. We all have that inner wisdom. We all have that idea of what may be off balance, right, in our lives or we're not quite working. It is not quite working in our lives. And so having the courage to even believe that you can overcome that and to set an intention to overcome that, I feel would be an incredible starting point for defining your own personal journey through this. Yeah. And so maybe what you're offering is that the practice, the simple practice of asking yourself that question of coming up with an intention because it may not come to you the first day that you do it. You know, tomorrow I wake up and I say, okay, I'm going to do this. It may not come in the first day. It may not even come in the first week or the first month. Perhaps just starting with that practice, which is the first step, right? Of setting an intention for what is it that I need? What is out of balance within me? You know, it's actually the inquiry that I ask so many of my clients and students to go through when we are starting with an Ayurvedic journey is to actually ask themselves, what is the symptom that's showing up for me? What is that information that my mind, body, spirit is trying to give me and asking that question, being reflective, right? And so I, I feel like that's maybe what you're offering too, is starting with that practice of reflection is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because then you also own your own experience and your own journey and it becomes your own. And that's really important too, that people right. are feeling empowered to own their journey and to go on the journey that their own inner voice guides them to go on. Yeah. So this feels like a beautiful place for us to end our time together on the podcast. And so if I offer up the phrase to you to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? To catalyze healing brings up the image of igniting the fire of transformation in the third chakra, which is about digesting our food, information, emotions, and life experiences. Mm, beautiful. Ananda, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful conversation and for your work. I am so honored to know you and meet you and I hope that we'll do it again. 
Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful connecting with you. And thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.